Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend Benji Buchanan. Benji is currently a computer science student at the University of Connecticut, and here we have a wide-ranging conversation that takes many different swerves. First, we talk about Benji's experience in the military and what it was like for him to undergo Bud's Navy SEAL training. And then we shift to a conversation about mindfulness. Then we talk about an educational app that Benji's recently developed. And then finally, we talk about some ethics of technology cases, you might call them. Specifically, we discuss the ethics of augmented reality systems, the question as to whether internet access should be regarded as a fundamental human right, the question as to whether there's a right to be forgotten online, and then we also talk about what you might call the problem of algorithmic filtering towards the end as well. So, again, something for the whole family. I think Benji will definitely be a recurring guest because I highly enjoy talking with him. So buckle your seatbelts, kids. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So yeah, can you explain the journey just from the military to the brink of being a digital entrepreneur? Sure, yeah. Um, so I would actually start probably pre-military. Uh, when I was in high school, I knew that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Just all the recruiting material really appealed to me. Killing bad guys, doing cool shit like jumping out of planes, going underwater. Um, just seemed really appealing to me. And there was also the, the mental aspect of it, of being challenged to do things that just seemed insurmountable. So... Originally, I wanted to go in after high school. Luckily, my dad was a lot wiser than me, and he more or less said I'd have his blessing to do it if I did two years at Manchester Community College. So a year into that, I was like, oh, shit, school's kind of cool. I want to do this a little bit more. So I ended up going here, started, I want to say, in 2011, so I graduated here with uh, a degree in exercise science in 2014. Okay. So How I, old are you? I'm probably older than you, man. <laughs> you don't have to say for the podcast. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you do the quick math, you'd find out I'm either 27 or 28. Yeah, yeah. So it is the former of the two right now. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, you don't look that old. Thank you. I don't know if that's a compliment, but... Hitting on me? I like it. <laughs> no homo. <laughs> mm, I I like say. that watch, boy. <laughs> it's digital, too. But yeah, so basically, while I was in uh, college, I did a lot of what I thought would be like really preparatory things like doing uh, an Ironman triathlon, doing a bunch of endurance stuff. Uh, doesn't fucking help in SEAL training. Spoiler alert. I ended up getting a, a contract to go to training, and um, parts of it were pretty much what I thought it would be. Other parts weren't. I'd say, hmm, how can I, how can I say this? Um, what you see on the internet 
is 99% of what they want you to see. Like a lot of the... My, so my impression of it is it's just utter hell. And it pretty much breaks you mentally and physically. And then you're reborn from the ashes as a kind of superhero. That's, that's exactly what they want. Like that's exactly <laughs> what they want you to think. Um, my experience was it was... Um, very, very physically demanding, mm-hmm. but the mentally demanding part. So the way the whole SEAL training stuff works is you go to boot camp first if you get contracted uh, to try to become a SEAL. So that's what I did. After that, you actually go to BUDS, which is in Coronado, California. The first three or four weeks of that is INDOC. INDOC is like a good time for where it more or less bridges the gap between prep and uh, first phase of buds. So I'd say f- for the most part, everything's possible in indoc. You get to learn some of the procedures, a lot of the safety stuff, um, stuff that gets you prepared for first phase. And then when you get to first phase, that's when shit hits the fan. And uh, within the first uh, four weeks, that's when like uh, the attrition rate just kind of skyrockets. People are dropping out frequently. Yeah. So to give you an idea... And that's what they're trying. They're tailoring the program to try to weed out yes. people who aren't up for yeah. the task to be a SEAL. Exactly. So my class, um, I'm not going to say it over the internet, but basically we started with, I think, about 160 people and eight finished Hell Week. My God. So Is that normal for a class? Or? No, that's that's on the low side. Um Typically, it's it's a little bit it's higher than that, um, and that also doesn't include the rollbacks. So, eight people finished Hell Week. Out of those eight, I believe three graduated on time. Um, there ended up probably being a total of probably close to twenty people who are now walking around with tridents on their chest. Uh, that's like the seal insignia. Mm. Um, so. Eventually, people get there. They might have to wait till the next class rolls around to uh, rehab an injury or something like that. Um, yeah, first phase is fucking awful. Um, just to give you an idea. I mean, hardest it, thing you've ever done physically? Yeah, physically, hands down. Like uh, in Ironman, a, a single day in Indoc, which wasn't even buds, was more challenging than uh, an Ironman was for me. Just Damn. Be- just because there's the physical aspect is certainly there, but it's also the stress, the stress of knowing that this is your dream. You've worked so hard to get here. And if you fuck up, you're done. And then you're testing your manhood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what happened with me, I ended up quitting because I felt that I was holding my team back and um, for boats on heads. The, the short version of the story is the way the boats are kind of cambered. The guys who are in the front and the back, they have a little bit less of the load. And the guys who are in the middle, they have the majority. Not the majority, but they have more of the load proportionately. Right. So every now and then you get a few candidates who might be a little bit smaller than some of the other people. And they'll try and sneak into those what we call boat crews. So that way they're always doing a little bit less of the work. Mm. And... I always felt like uh, I very much so bought into like Marcus Luttrell and Lone Survivor where it's like, hey, you do everything you can until you're dead to help out the boys. No, no shortcuts. Yeah. And I totally bought into that. And 
Um, I would say that's one philosophy. It does work for some guys. They end up becoming SEALs, and they're typically the best SEALs. Well, I don't know that. I, I never was a SEAL, so I really can't say that. But if I were to, in my experience, the guys that I know and the guys who have been successful, that mentality is great. Yeah. However, you also have people that will basically do anything it takes to make it through, meaning... Maybe taking some shortcuts if you can get away with it. I wouldn't even call it... It's a more of like a pragmatic yeah. perspective in terms of how to get through. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call it a shortcut. It's just... Yeah, that's probably the wrong word. Rather than putting um, like 100% of the effort in, maybe they're putting 90 or so. Yeah. And you can do little ways to kind of make that work. Right. So, yeah, I went 100%. And I just felt so, so I ended up um, falling out from under the boat, meaning that I just felt like I couldn't physically keep up with my boat crew um, in that middle spot. And the thing that to this day still pisses me off is the night before the boat crew that I was in, we were doing um, a very similar evolution, just sprinting with the boats on our head. And we kept winning, so we got secured early. We got to finish that evolution before a lot of other teams. Now, uh, the next day, different boat crews, all of a sudden, I can't hang in the two spot. And this is where, like, kind of um, the mind gets at you. My logic was, oh, my God, I can't fucking do this. If I can't do this, I'm not going to be a SEAL. Oh, my God, I'm not going to be a fucking SEAL. So I started talking really negatively to myself. and That started probably just made it a lot harder. 100%, man. And I kept basically getting up, uh, trying to run with the boat crew, asking them to slow down a little bit. You can't say slow down. You say smooth out. Because if an instructor hears you say slow down, you'll get the fucking shit beat out of you. <laughs> Metaphorically. Right. Um, <laughs> so... Basic the power that one word can do. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, yeah, I just, I felt like I was letting down everyone. And one of the instructors who I really respected basically said, if this was a mission, you're going to get me hurt because I'm going to have to carry back your dead body. That's more or less what he said Jesus to me. fucking Christ. Oh, they know how to get you where it hurts. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I was being a pussy at the time. Like, if I... I mean, I guess it's easy for me to say that in a very comfortable, warm room with you right now versus like running on two, three hours of sleep just <laughs> fucking first week or so per night, per mm -hmm. night. Um, but yeah, like if I were to do it again, I would just have a totally different mentality. And ultimately, I quit because it was tough and I didn't think I could do it. And once once my mind had had made that decision, like Benji you can't do this. That's when I was like, wow. I w and there's a little part of me that's like, wow, I, I always knew, not that I always knew, it's like I knew this would be really tough. And before like, I ever started training, I said the only way that I would quit is if I was hurting my boys. And it meant that me staying in would be bad for everyone. So I don't know if that's how I rationalized it at the time. Um, but when I look back at it now, I was just being a fucking pussy. I could have gotten it done. Do you think that in addition to the physical stress of it, maybe a part of it was 
because you've, you've talked about how um, you didn't like the lifestyle and you didn't like the brainwashing. Do you think that maybe there is a part of you that knew that this wasn't the line of work that you wanted to do? And and I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses for you, but I'm, I'm honestly curious. Do you think if you had really just brought in, bought into the lifestyle more and you were convinced that, yes, this is my path, that would have given you that extra motivation to so. break through that physical stress? I don't think so because the typical SEAL lifestyle is very different than the typical Navy lifestyle. And even the SEAL instructors at boot camp, they wouldn't outright say like, yeah, you guys are doing like some stupid shit. We don't make you do that. They never said that, but you could tell very much that they were not down with the Navy life. Um, and I had, um, I'd actually interned with the SEAL teams as a strength and conditioning coach um, a little before a year that I enlisted. So I had a pretty decent idea of what it was like to be a SEAL. Uh, that said, knowing what I know now and knowing my own personal struggles with depression and anxiety, I think if my job was to shoot bad guys in the face, which is ultimately what SEALs do, I don't think that would have been good for me long term. But at the time, I was not thinking about that whatsoever. I was just thinking... Again, ship, shipmate self. I was letting down everyone else. I had to go. And don't get me wrong, that shit was really fucking tough. Like, every, um, not every second, but a lot of times they talk about people um, DORing, drop on request, quitting uh, between uh, evolutions or during chow runs. And that's basically when your brain has a second to think and it's just anticipating. And it's like, oh fuck, that was really hard. Now I'm gonna have to do more hard shit. Mm. This is gonna really fucking suck. Yeah. And that's where like uh, a lot of times when you hear about like seal mental toughness, it's being positive, it's being present, it's being mindful. That's really my experience. Uh, that's one of the things that I would have changed. I wasn't being negative in those chow runs, but I was certainly anxious about upcoming evolutions rather than just appreciating right now, I get to breathe. If I was lucky, I might have not been cold or sandy. And there's even like um, one time I remember they were about to beat us and um, I'm just standing there in the sun and I was just like, oh, this is great. It's the moment of relaxation. I know this is going to hurt, but right now I'm warm. And this is <laughs> fucking great. There's a lot of pain on the horizon, but... <laughs> you know, and, and that's like a perfect uh, example of like the power of mindfulness. Because yeah. had I been thinking of like, oh my God, how are they going to beat us this time? Last time it really fucking hurt, but what's going to happen this time? Like, that's not where your mind should be. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, I haven't endured anything that physically well i've gotten into a pretty bad quad accident but mm. like in terms of like exercise i haven't endured anything that physically grueling but yeah just the power of your inner speech and yeah. how changing the cadence of your inner speech can allow you to endure things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to endure i mean i just go back to the, the treadmill example where i was on the treadmill and i realized it was so hard but i realized that the hardness didn't come from the actual pain that I was experiencing. It came from me, like you said, me anticipating yes. how much there was left to do. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this sucks right now, and I still have 40 more minutes on the treadmill. Yeah. How am I going to be able to bear it? But then I realized, wait, 
you're bearing it right now. Yes. Like you are bearing the pain right now. So all that suffering, I guess you can make a distinction between suffering and physical pain. Mm. And a lot of that suffering is manufactured via cognition, yeah. not the pain. You realize that you can endure the pain, so don't add on to the pain with that cognitive layer of suffering. Just live in the moment because you are, you've already overcome the pain in the moment. Yep. So yeah, it's that anticipation of how much there is left that I have to do. And I feel like that extends not just to physical exercise, but to mental tasks as well. Like if I'm just writing a paper or something like that, a lot of times I just won't get started because I just thinking about all the work, you know, all this is obvious, but it's worth reiterating because mindfulness is just one of the psychological keys that can just make your life so much better in so many different ways. But it's just a matter of not thinking about the whole paper at once because if you're thinking about the whole paper at once, it's an extremely psychologically daunting task and it immediately demotivates you from even getting started. But if you just focus on that sentence, right, just living in the present, what sentence are you on right now? Mm -hmm. Just focus on that sentence and write that sentence. You're like, oh yeah, I got that sentence. I can do the next thing. One of the the best memories I have uh, in Buds was like, I remember one evolution, I, I believe it was it was just a typical run, and I was gassed. A bunch of guys ended up getting heat stroke after yeah. this. Uh, turns out when you don't drink a lot of water and it's 90 degrees out, because uh, you're only allowed to do things at a team, so you can't drink water unless all of your team's drinking water. Really? Yeah, so God. basically, like, I was starting to get fucked up, uh, like, just in terms of, like, mentally losing my wit because heat stroke um, it almost makes you drunk in a way. Mm. Um, and what I'd tell myself is there'd be these, I don't think they were telephone poles, just these giant posts. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make it to the next post. And yeah. then if I want to quit, that's fine. And get to yeah. the next quote, the next post. I'm like, you know what? I made it here, but I can do the next one. Next thing you know, man, like you get back into your groove and you just climb over that, that wall. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's one of the best memories I have because whether it's writing a sentence in a paper or doing something physical, it's just setting those short-term goals and then making progress, being proud of yourself for making progress, and then just sticking with it. Yeah, and there's a... I'm TAing for the social ethics class right now, and we're talking about a case, this kind of edge case, which takes this mindfulness to the extreme, where there's an example of a monk who burned himself alive during the Vietnam War yeah. protest, there's a video of it, and he just doesn't move as he's being burned alive. And he seems to have cultivated a kind of sense of inner peace, which is able to resist even horrendous amounts of physical Jesus. suffering. So like that kind of psychological stability and mindfulness is just completely foreign to me, you know? But it's just, I mean, it's like we were talking about the conversation you and I had on the first day of class. The present is the only place that exists. Yeah the only place that exists Mm -hmm. and it's like one of those obvious things but once you really internalize it and you think about it you become aware of the fact that at least me i'm constantly ruminating about the past and anticipating the future Mm -hmm. and there's all this cognitive noise which is just preventing me from living in the only place that exists the future never arrives yeah the past is just a memory arising in consciousness right now right it's all just sensations arising in consciousness right now so if this is the only moment that ever exists why wouldn't you choose to live in it 
And that's the thing I've been trying, hopefully successfully, but it's really hard to explain that to people who haven't like experienced it. Yeah. And it's crazy to think because we're all obviously living in the present at this current moment in time. But to like recognize that and to be aware and to be willing to to put what's happened in the past in the past to make plans for the future, but also not to dwell on like, oh, my God, I have to do this and then that and then all these other things. Like, to be completely honest, there is a part of me that wanted to email you today and be like, shit, man, I got a lot of things to do. I can't make the interview or I can't do the pod with you. Mm. But then I was like, you know, I do have a lot of things to do. But at the same time, I can do them another time. And I also know that I'm going to get a lot out of this. And this is what's going to make me enjoy my life on this Friday. Right. Yeah. And it's almost like a paradox because you think that by stressing about the future and thinking about yeah. it, that you're gonna be more efficient. Yep. Like in order to accomplish all the things I want to accomplish in the future, I need to hold them at the forefront of consciousness at all times. But it's actually the opposite. Actually, if you're just truly mindful in each moment and you're able to mentally compartmentalize all these things you need to do, it actually leads you to be more efficient. You know, it's... Uh, and yeah, it, you wouldn't think that that's the case, but once you realize just how bound up in thought you are all the time and how if you escape that, there's just so much more uh, mental energy that you can use towards actually doing the things that exactly. you want to do. You ever heard of the book uh, Peak Performance? No, I don't think so. So um, I'll have to get you the authors because I can't think of them off the top of my head. The, uh, so have you heard of The Power of Habit with Charles Duhigg? Uh, I don't think so. So it's another, it's a little bit older, uh, as the name implies, it's all about our, it's all about habits, but with peak performance, um, what it kind of talks about is how important rest and leisure time is to achieve peak performance, both in athletics and also in working regular life. So I believe the story they talk about in peak performance is with the first guy to run a sub four minute mile. And before he did it successfully, he he trained like a maniac, like he's been training, missed it the first time. Again, trained like a maniac, missed it the second time. Maybe that happened one or two more times. I can't think of the story 100% clearly, but on the... Before the attempt where he actually was successful, he took like, I want to say two weeks completely off from running. And as a, uh, a self-proclaimed current athlete and definitely a former athlete, that's like terrifying to me. Like I yeah. shit myself like that close to, um, to a competition because that defies pretty much all sports science um, to take a two-week break even like months before um, an event. So what ended up happening is that recharged either his mental batteries, it did something physiologically to him, Mm. and it allowed him to break that four-minute mile mark. So I'll have to get you like the details on the story, but they talk about it in the book, and it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. So they extrapolated that, and they looked at high performers in like Google, Microsoft. So 
they typically, these high performers in those corporate companies, they typically worked seven days a week. Um, I forget how many hours per day. And in this study, they said you are not allowed to work one day a week. You can't think about, well, I suppose you can't not think about work. <laughs> They're not going to have thought police <laughs> monitoring every single Hopefully time. not. But um, at first, the workers were unbelievably terrified by this. But right. they ended up doing it. And surprise, surprise, the workers who took a day off were more productive than the workers who worked seven days a week. Yeah. So that's something I'm trying to get better at, like, with both my, I guess now it's more like, academic entrepreneurial because athletic side i'm a lot more lazy now than i've been in the past yeah you still look very fit oh thank um, you thank you continuing to hit on you throughout the podcast <laughs> <laughs> slowly seducing you um yeah it kind of goes back to that one phrase you know you just uh you get a good night's sleep and then suddenly you're able to solve the problem that yep. you weren't able to solve the night before you know what that's called by the way what so uh it's coined in the term uh by dr Barbara Oakland, uh, uh, what's it called? How to Excel at Math and Science. That's like the title, but there's another word I can't think of. Oh. She differentiates between diffused thinking and focused thinking. So the idea, and she actually has a, a brilliant um, example in the book. If you have 10 coins on you, I can show you the example right now. I don't have time. Damn it, man. I, come on. <laughs> I told you to bring those coins. I'll have to show you another time. But um, yeah, so the idea is actually, it's almost like when your brain's working in the background, you actually can't focus on something in order to solve the problem. And myself as a computer scientist, a lot of times with algorithms, I've noticed this where once I give up on the problem or I walk away, yeah, all of a sudden my brain's like, bro, I got it. Try this. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, I've been having a lot of trouble with that with uh, the dissertation perspectives that I'm working mm. on. I, I just, it's an inability to get off that cognitive treadmill. Yeah. You know, even when I'm at night, when I'm just like, all right, just relax now. And I'm, that's not to say that, you know, I'm still a procrastinator and I still need to be a better worker and all that. But I'm still, I'm constantly, even when I'm not explicitly typing or something like that, I'm constantly thinking about it. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I think I need to be better in terms of just structuring times of the day where, okay, you're going to do this thing now. Okay. Again, mentally compartmentalizing things because yeah, when you're just on that cognitive treadmill all the time and you can never get that mental breather. Yeah. Um, yeah. It almost kind of like sucks the life out of any uh, psychological innovation that you might have. Do you exercise regularly? Yeah, I'm a big runner. Excellent. V very much into cardio. So I've been, do I've been trying to do 50 push-ups a day recently. Nice. Uh, what I'd say, uh, <laughs> what's worked for me in the past is my new workflow is typically, for one reason or another, my body gets itself up around 536-ish. Really? And I tend to be, yeah, I, I go to bed at um, almost always the same time every night. So I'm pretty well, uh, my sleep hygiene's pretty good. Mm. So what I do now or what I prefer to do with most of my days is from when I wake up, usually I'll do like some sort of foam rolling, stretching routine, uh, mindfulness. And then for anywhere from 30 minutes to three or four hours, I will just work. Mm. And then when I get to the point where... I become frustrated or I'm just like, I need a break from this. That's when I'll start to exercise. 
ideally, if I get frustrated on a problem, uh, like right at that point, that's a perfect time to do whatever exercise that I was going to do because you've got that problem working in the background. You'll get more blood flow to the brain during exercise. And then after, depending on how long you run, you might even get a little runner's high from it. Oh, yeah. I love that runner's high. Yeah. So structuring your exercise around your academic work or just, I guess, work in general is something that works really, really well for me. So something to consider. Yeah. No, that's a, that's good advice. Um, you're definitely a lot more disciplined than I am. But again, it's like a paradox because you think that when you, st- when you run into that cognitive roadblock, you know, when you're working on a problem or whatever it is, the best thing that you should do is hunker down <laughs> yeah. and really just yeah. think it through. Dude, right? it, it takes time and it takes training yeah. for that. Uh, can we get to uh, your app? Absolutely. And everything that you're developing now? All right, so yeah, tell, tell us about this app and how you've started to become enamored with the idea of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, so um, the funny thing is the app that I told you about, what, maybe two, three weeks ago, yeah. whenever it is that we talked, uh, that's thrown out. Not what? 100%, but yeah, so... The the gist of it is... You don't seem pessimistic about that. I feel like, is there a silver lining here? Yeah. Oh, it's there's a platinum lining. Oh, God. <laughs> or, oh, bring me to that lining. <laughs> well, actually, I'd say it's a, it's a cocaine lining because that's, I believe, the highest value per gram thing that we have in the world. Okay. I, but, like, um, <laughs> I, I like those drug analogies. <laughs> so anyhow... Um, so I think I told you I'm in Accelerate UConn, which has been life-changing. Um, so can you just explain what that is? Sure. So let's see. What's a good way to kind of talk about this? So an accelerator in terms of entrepreneurship and startup from a very, very high level. The idea is you've got mentors, you've got instructors that have either been successful entrepreneurs on their own or have been in business long enough to be, to guide you in a very good way. So the idea behind an accelerator is rather than try, try, fail, try, 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 fail, you basically do all the failing up front. You figure out exactly the weakest parts of your product, of your business model canvas, of your idea, of see where your customers need the most help. You get that stuff done as soon as possible. So then you make a product that people actually want. So the product that I was telling you about, essentially it was a a form of an intelligent tutoring system. Hmm. Very like, and that's moderately disrespectful to people who have created ITSs because I wouldn't even classify this in the same realm. Basically the thing that my app did was there was three components to it a pre-lecture a post-lecture and an ongoing review so the pre-lecture would include vocabulary words or concepts that could be condensed down to a flashcard. research has shown that if you are exposed to some of that material before a lecture you are more likely to retain elements of that lecture better than had you have no exposure to it. So these concepts on the flashcards are concepts that play a significant role in the main lecture. Yes. Yep. To kind of just getting your toes wet before you dive Exactly. In. So the, uh, the learning science concept is called priming. So you can Google that later, but it's 
you'll just get a gist of what I just said or right. and what you summarized. And then um, after lecture, there were multiple choice questions that were developed for that specific lecture. So you can do a few things with those multiple choice questions. You can take advantage of something called the testing effect. That's the idea where if you remember taking a multiple choice question um, exam, and then every now and then you get really frustrated with one question and you aren't sure if you got it or not, and then you leave the exam and you're like, fuck, I don't know if I got that, but you're still thinking about it. Mm -hmm. the, the time that you actually figure out whether or not you got that correctly or not, because you've expended so much energy thinking about that question, you're very likely to remember that for an extended period of time. That's the idea behind the testing effect. When you test knowledge, you're actually more likely to retain knowledge as well. So basically, I was forcing students to take advantage of these two elements of learning science that have been known for years, but I don't think even currently are well integrated into our classes. So the last portion, the ongoing review, uh, another thing well documented in learning science is called spaced repetition. So when you go through a deck of flashcards, there's going to be some that you know and you don't need to see again for like a day or two. There's right. going to be some that you have no clue and you should see it within the next two minutes or 10 minutes or the next hour or so. So the idea is if you create an algorithm that can track your performance and then make recommendations or estimations on when it should cue you with this stimulus mm. of seeing this flashcard, then you're more likely to retain the information. Mm -hmm. So essentially what that does, um, you ever heard of Bloomfield's taxonomy? Yeah, that yeah, sounds familiar. Little, Remind me though. Yeah, it's like this little triangle thing that basically says you have to go through certain steps to learn something. And usually the base layer is just kind of this rote memorization. And then from there, you might have a little bit of recall application, and then eventually, towards the top of it, is just coming up with your own thoughts on the, um, on the subject. So that would be like the difference between um, knowing, I guess in philosophy, it would be being able to tell you what a certain philosopher said, then being able to apply it to everyday life, and then all the way at the top of the triangle would be creating your own sort of philosophy that builds on that previous philosopher's work. Right, okay. So that basically would uh, it's be... kind of like passive learning to active learning in a, in a way? You know, I've never thought of it that way, but yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty accurate way of thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's basically originally the application that I developed, and... I haven't crunched the numbers yet. Uh, we tested it for one of the exams in um, a class at UConn. And honestly, I'd be pretty surprised if the students who used my application didn't outperform the other students. That's not me being cocky. That's just simply the science says that's probably going to happen. And I think, too... What class did you test it on? Uh, Bio 1107, a... Uh, it's an intro course. It's fairly notorious for being very difficult, particularly for an intro course. And um, yeah, like I said, I'll have to crunch the numbers to get some actual data. But the reason that I'm saying uh, 
it's not going to end up being what I sell to people is because I offered this thing to 268 students. Out of that, 60-something signed up. Out of that, about 30 or so used it daily. And this is a kind of system that needed to be used daily to take advantage of the benefits that I was describing earlier. How did you go about offering them this? Were you just so, standing on the side of the street in a trench coat? Hey, just, kid. <laughs> like what I do. You want to get ahead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, I, I've been working with the professor. He um, had me come in. I gave a very brief presentation to the class. I basically pitched it as, would you rather do 10 minutes of work every day or three hours of work the night before the exam and then get a much worse grade after doing three hours of work the night before exam. Now myself, being the naive college student I am, I thought other college students would be like, I'm a college student. I don't like doing work. Therefore, I will choose the option with less work. Mm -hmm. However, I made a a very, very risky assumption that turned false. And my assumption was that people would be disciplined enough to use the application daily or at least bi-daily. Hmm. And that's that wasn't what the data found. So like I said, I haven't correlated the usage of the app to test scores, but ultimately I built something really cool that probably works that no one really wants. Yeah. So, just because, just because people aren't disciplined and they don't use it every day, I wonder: is there a way, like, is there like some incentive structure you could build into the app so as to more consistently capture the user's attention? You, you certainly could. So a lot of times uh, they do gamification, which is like for every day you um, you do something, you get like ten points, and maybe you get a gold star or some shit like that. People love gold stars, don't they, man? Like. <laughs> I don't know. Call me naive. I just I respect my users too much for that. But if you made the use of the application mandatory, that's one way to get around it. But the reason I say um, I'm building something that no one wants is ultimately professors in these introductory courses, what we were talking about before, they don't typically measure student success by exam scores. They measure right. it by... Did this student learn something that's applicable outside of my class? Did this student, is this student able to have an intelligent conversation about this subject with me? That's how they measure success. It's very qualitative, not quantitative. And your app necessar doesn't necessarily deliver that kind of success. It's more geared towards delivering the quantitative success. Exactly. My value proposition with that application was a quantitative uh, aspect, which appeals to people who are trying to go to med school. And there's certainly a market for it, but it is, it's small. It seems like it would still appeal to the students. It might not appeal to the professors if they're more looking for the qualitative results, but the students still want to get good grades in the classes, don't they? So they do. And this is where, um, honestly, I, I had a bit of a, a moral ethical dilemma because there's two paths I could have gone with that. Um, the way that I had originally planned was I'd get this uh, application endorsed by the professor who would make it mandatory for the students to purchase. Now, that in itself, you can argue that's unethical. I would argue 
There's many other things in higher education much more unethical than that. Is it more, yeah, is it more unethical than mandating that a student buy an extremely expensive textbook? Exactly. I would argue, hell no. And especially, too, with that former idea, you could use older textbooks, because a lot of times professors like the ease that textbooks do in simplifying their job and the things they have to do. Yeah. So in order to get access to, like... Um, WebAssign or something like that, you have to buy an expensive textbook that ultimately students don't tend to use just to get the course code to be able to do the homework. So my application would be a cost-effective alternative to that. Um, but like I said, when I started talking to more and more customers and I started to learn about their problems, uh, the two things that I've identified as really interesting patterns that professors and TAs uh, either want to increase or decrease. Um, these two things are they want to increase student engagement and decrease the amount of time they spent grading. Mm. So what I'm working on now is a solution that's more in class. Um, it's... I'm not going to discuss it too, too much. One, because it's a work in progress. And two, because I don't want anyone to steal the idea for the time being. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully half a year to a year from now, especially if I get accepted into this summer fellowship program, I'll have a prototype. And yeah, you said you were meeting with uh, some someone who liked the idea at that fair or whatever. It oh, was. yeah. So that dude was a fucking badass. So um, <laughs> I checked out his link that you yeah. sent me. Yeah. So this dude, uh, he's got an office in the White House, in the Pentagon, and on Capitol Hill. And he just so happens to My also God. like mentoring veterans in his free time. <laughs> like, what a hell of a dude. So yeah, that that's another funny story. Um, that was supposed to be something literally I'd only go for for free lunch because he was going there to talk about jobs like um, and how we could leverage our experience as veterans uh, within the job market. And I was like, cool, but I'm not trying to get a job. I'm trying to be an entrepreneur. So I was like, I'll come for the lunch. I'll say hi. He seems like a cool dude. Turns out it was just one other dude and I who came. Um, the other dude, uh, he got the job advice, ended up like also hitting it off. And with this guy, um, again, I don't want to get into the specifics of what I talked to him about, but he basically said, by only thinking of applying this in a higher education setting, I was excluding a very, very potentially profitable sector, and that's the defense industry because every single military branch does some sort of training and education. They also have a couple other uh, problems, not necessarily the student engagement problem, but the grading problem. So I'm going to leave it vague. Yeah, that. that's fine. We can that's talk fine. offline um, if you want to know the details, because I think it's a pretty cool thing. So Yeah, the people, you know, in however many years or so, they'll see it on some commercial or whatever. So this is just a preamble hopefully they won't know my name they they won't know much about it but hopefully if i do this right education will be completely different than what you and i are doing right now yeah you know one thing i really like about this is um it's an app that 
is time well spent? So this is a phrase that comes from the uh, Google design ethicist called Tristan Harris. So he's brought attention to the fact that so many of these big, you know, we live in this insane attention uh, economy where all these big tech companies are just relentlessly competing for our attention and doing whatever they can to grab our attention, even if it's to the detriment of our own psychological well-being. And <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Fa- yeah. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter. And I experience this on a subjective level every single day. I mean, it, I, it's an addiction. You know, yeah. I'm addicted just to mindlessly scrolling Facebook, and it's so good at capturing my attention. And, you know, if you were to ask me at the end of me mindlessly scrolling Facebook, was that time well spent? I'll say, no, of course it wasn't. <laughs> and I don't even feel, yeah, another thing is, I don't even feel good while I'm doing it. I think yeah. I may have made this point in class. But if you're. You know, if I'm eating junk food or something like that, or, or yeah, it feels good while I'm doing it, then I regret it afterwards, and I say I wish I hadn't done that. Yep. But with this, it's an addiction that isn't even fun; doesn't yeah. even feel good. So, this, it's these big tech companies are just deranging our psychology, but they're doing it in an effective way. So, Tristan Harris has made has launched this initiative called Time Well Spent, where he's really. I don't want to misspeak because I don't know all the details, but he's essentially just trying to force these big big tech companies to reevaluate the ethical obligations that they might have to their consumers and um, is pushing for apps that grab your attention in a way that uh, after using the apps, you can reflect upon it and say like, yeah, that was a good use of my time. Yeah. And I respect what you're doing because you're developing an app or trying to develop an app which is doing just that. Right, you're not you're not just developing something which might be profitable. Exactly, but, uh, is a detriment to people's lives. Yeah, so that actually it's funny you mention that because a buddy of mine and I, we had a conversation the other day about how we identified as being intrinsic, intrinsically motivated versus extrinsically. So, I've been really um, buying into stoicism and practicing it on a daily basis, whether it's a gratitude practice or imagining that this is the last time that I'm ever going to talk to you. So I should appreciate every last second that we spend together. But it is, by the way, we're done after this. <laughs> Son of, I thought you were hitting on me. Just <laughs> playing hard to get now. <laughs> Ooh, it's working. But um, with that, so my whole thing with education When I was in high school, I was the most average student ever. Like, I was right at that 50th percentile. Not good, not bad. My first time through college, I did better. uh, Somewhere between, like, a 3.3 and a 3.5. And then this past time, I'm very close to a 4.0. And the reason I bring that up is it tells me that learning is a skill. I don't think I, I got too much more intelligent, per se. Not more intelligent than my peers at least I've just gotten really good at learning Mm. and with that being said that tells me that anyone has the ability to learn anything so if I can help people come to the realization that I came to yeah and I make some money along the way cool but I'd rather have an impact that actually helps people just make the world a more educated tolerant dare I say human place yeah, yeah, and one thing that I keep going back to on the educational point is 
it just, yeah, it seems like we need to reach, and a lot of people have made this point, but it seems like we need to restructure our educational system so as to move away from just rote fact retention yeah. and to move towards teaching people how to engage with the wealth of information that's available at mm. their fingertips in a virtuous way. Yep. So it's more of a, it's not a fact, it's not a matter of fact retention, it's a matter of informational navigation. Yeah. Right? You know, all of, again, all of the human knowledge is available at my fingertip via my iPhone. So teach people how to distinguish credible sources from mm-hmm. incredible sources or fake news from real news, or teach them how to resist all of the forces of this attention economy, which are triantly, tr- constantly trying to grab their attention and draw them away from the tasks that they should be working on. Absolutely. Right? So it should be more geared towards that because we're just bombarded from all angles at every, at every time of the day with all this digital content. Um, so the information's there. Yeah, I'm just repeating myself now. It's just a matter of navigation. And no, but you bring up a really good point because um, one of the benefits that the application I made had is it very selectively chose what information was most relevant and most you would benefit the most from seeing. And I think that's... Um, that's a problem that expands, like you said, it's it's part of the uh, digital attention economy because you've got this vast amount of information. We are stimulus-driven creatures. If I see something that's got tits, I'm going to look at it because that's what I'm programmed to do. If there's something that's blaring, that is exciting, I naturally want to do that. It takes It takes a bit of training and conditioning yourself to be like, okay, but... Let me look at those tits after I'm done doing what I'm doing. Right. So can I can I throw some uh, internet ethics cases at you Ooh. and get your reaction? Okay, let's hear them. Yeah. So some of this stuff is stuff that we'll talk about in the class. I think w- one of these is something that we talked about uh, during the class that you missed. So we were talking about, um, I want to start with this. We were talking about the ethics of augmented reality systems, where augmented reality is a technology that, involves a combination of virtual reality and physical reality so it involves superimposing digital entities onto the real world yeah right so pokemon go would be an example yep. of an augmented reality system right um so yeah i had um the article that we were talking about is um the ethics of augmenting public and private spaces so you can imagine like near future world where we're all equipped with some ar glasses and we're constantly interacting with digital entities on, uh, in the real world. And wh- one question that we talked about in class was, so imagine that in this near future world, we're all occupying this kind of shared augmented sphere. Should you be allowed to augment public spaces freely? Ooh. And the two diametrically opposed positions on this is one camp says that public augmentation is like speech, right? So we you can't, the government just can't come in and monitor your free speech in a public space. You can say whatever you want. So can you augment a public space in the same way? Again, on the assumption that we're all living in this shared augmented space. The other perspective would say that augmentation in a case like that is synonymous with like graffiti. Interesting. Right. So um, and the thought there would be, yeah, we don't graffiti is kind of a public nuisance and we can take you know, we, we can remove graffiti when it's present. And I just thought this was an interesting question, and I was wondering what you think about it. So do you understand the kind of setup? No, I, I definitely do. Um, 
Another thing that I should add, just like there are two ways that augmented reality might develop in the future. So one um, is you have augmentation that's occurring over multiple apps. So Pokemon Go is an app. You have a different app. Another is the case that we're talking about. We're all inhabiting this shared augmented sphere. Yeah. Where um, if you augment something in the physical world, that I'm going to see it because we're all sharing the same mm. sphere. I don't know. I tend to think of it... It's tough because it does seem like it's graffiti more so in a particular way because it, it, it's a permanent in the way that, or it's semi-permanent in the way that graffiti is. Because when I speak, that's just the end of it. Like the word doesn't just linger in the air in that public space. Interesting. But if I augment a public space, that augmentation could stay there even after I leave in the way that yeah. graffiti stays there. You know, call me cynical. I'm going to argue it doesn't matter because how do you police something like that? And I think um, no matter what you do, it's going to be very difficult to stop that. So when I say it doesn't matter, I think it's going to be done anyways, the same way that graffiti is going to be there regardless if graffiti is legal or not. Mm. Personally, though... God, that is really tough. I know I'm putting you on the spot. No. So, like, here's here's my thought process. Like, graffiti is art in some cases to me. At the same time, you are defacing something that you are inherently not supposed to touch. So if I'm the person that designed that public space and I saw graffiti on it, I'd be pretty upset about that. So I could certainly see how that would be something that's not desirable. But then is it selfish for me as the creator of that public space for not some for someone to to for me to be offended that someone takes what I did and bring it to what they believe the, is the next level? Mm. Yeah, and, and it should be specified that we're talking about public spaces, not private property so the author of this article makes the point that yeah it seems unethical you can't just go around augmenting someone's private property like so just as someone if someone puts a sign in my yard that's my private property i have the right to remove that sign and in the same way the thought is if someone um puts some augmented digital object onto my (laughs) yard i have this i have the right to remove it right so it the the tricky ethical question comes into play when we're talking about uh, public spaces as opposed to private spaces. And maybe it matters what public, like what the public space we're talking about is or what kind of augmentation we're talking about is. So, you know, maybe, yes, we agree that it's permissible to augment public spaces using certain kinds of augmentation, but you can't implement a sexually graphic hmm. augmentation onto a public school or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So maybe that matter. Maybe the location matters and the content of the digital object matters as well. So perhaps it is the intent behind it. Um, so actually, can you Google something for me right now? Yeah. If you go, Yo, on, Jamie, pull that up. <laughs> right. So if you go on Google Images and type in Scientology sucks, tell me what the first image that you see is. I'm Google Images Scientology sucks. sucks. Um, the first image is just a picture that says Scientology sucks. Let me just... Then there's a plunger that says Scientology sucks. Big 
that right there. That one? So that is, I believe, um, a projected sucks underneath uh, the science the church of scientology in la so this is um either front page of reddit today or yesterday and really that's just how salient what we're talking about really is yeah so these... yeah so just for the listeners so this is a picture of a scientology church and then there's an augmented digital ob- uh, digital word that just says sucks that's been superimposed um like below the Scientology sign of the church. Yeah. Yeah. So there's these uh, there's these uh, YouTubers that have a documentary on them infiltrating the Church of Scientology. And the you can go on YouTube and type in Scientology sucks, and that's the actual documentary. It's pretty funny, uh, in my in my opinion. They do a pretty good job with it, and they talk about how basically Scientology brainwashes and manipulates people into following their quote-unquote religion. And I believe the thesis that they're coming off of is Scientology should have their religious status, which is tax-exempt, revoked. And something like this brings attention to them. Oh, yeah, I've heard people talking about that with respect to Scientology. Yeah. So do you think it brings attention to them in a negative way or a positive way? I think negative. Negative. So... For example, if I just caused you to Google Scientology sucks, now if you get a little bored later, there's a chance you take me up and you type in on YouTube, Scientology sucks. You see how Scientologists in this documentary manipulate people to make a profit off of them. People who are struggling and people who want a better life, they promise them X, Y, and Z. And there, it's very manipulative. It seems like a cult, from what I know oh, about yeah. it. Fuck yeah! It's it's all much. sorts of fucks, it's, man. It's kind of fucked. They still have a te- tax exempt status. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could make the argument that all religions shouldn't have that tax exempt status, but at least when you're talking about Scientology, yeah, mm-hmm. that seems crazy. Yeah, that seems. Fucking yeah, nice. check out um the YouTube videos. They're they're pretty funny. Uh, they get a little weird after like the sixth or seventh one, but um. While they, they get, spoiler alert, they get kicked out of the Church of Scientology. That's when it gets a little weird. But before that, they're, they're fucking gold. Another thing that we're going to talk about in class is there's this uh, debate between, or the, there's this new idea that people have a right to be forgotten online. Mm. And I've actually been thinking about this recently just with my podcast. Because if you type in my name, that's one of the first things that comes up. And I've yeah. interviewed people who... Um, ask me to remove their name from the show notes and yeah. from the title of the episode so they don't come up in a page search. So there have been, there have been some people um, who have been arguing that you have a right to be forgotten and that they've been demanding that search engines or websites delete or unlink personal information mm. about them, even if that information is true. Um, and even if that information doesn't exhibit any bias. So it's not just like, hey, this person defamed me. This is false. Please remove this. No, it could be completely true information, completely unbiased information, but that person just doesn't want that information on the public record. Yeah. They, they don't want that to be one of the first things that comes up when you type their name in because that kind of defines their digital identity in a way, and yeah. they don't want to be held to that. So there's this huge debate, and... What does it say here? Yeah, so I guess it's enshrined in EU law now that yeah, I heard about this, that. Yeah, that this right forgotten exists. 
And the argument is that this is a fundamental aspect of the right to privacy. Mm. But uh, the interesting part comes in when you have certain people arguing that um, this right to be forgotten can butt heads with the right to free speech. Mm. So especially if you're a notable public figure, some people might argue like, look, a part of the right to free speech is the right to access lawful and true information online. And by getting rid of this information, you're actually infringing upon my right to free speech to access that information. Yeah. And then those other people would be like, no, you're infringing my right to be forgotten. So you have the right to free speech and the right to privacy coming into contact in the digital realm here. And um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, maybe you can help me think through this a bit because I really don't know what my perspective is on it. I think it says... Yeah, so Google argues that the right to be forgotten butts heads with the right to free speech. They take the opposite perspective. But, you know, it does, you know, especially in this world where all of your employers will check your digital footprint. Yeah. And everyone's going to, you know, see what you've done online to see if they can cancel you, maybe, if they don't like you. Right. So I feel like this is increasingly relevant in this new world that we're living in. So I I actually have pretty strong thoughts about this one, and I believe that um, one of the driving factors behind the EU making that decision actually stemmed from revenge porn. So for those not familiar with revenge porn, it's the idea that, um, let's say, myself and someone else are in a romantic relationship, and she sends me nude pictures. Then we break up, and to get back at her, I post her pictures online without Mm. her consent. Mm. That's the idea behind revenge porn. And I believe the story goes with um, this particular case that I'm thinking of. She had to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to get Google, perhaps not Google, I don't want to say that on the record, um, to get people to take down like that that was her because it was posted without her consent. Right. So I feel, and there's a good chance that this could bite me in the ass later, that when you do something in the public spotlight, maybe if you're under 21 and your brain's not fully developed, once you have an idea of what exactly the internet is that you... If it's not false, so if it's something that's true, then I don't think that it should be deleted um, when it's consent. So, for example, right now I am consenting to have this interview or this podcast with you. I am being particularly careful with what I'm saying, with what I'm not saying. So I believe that's my responsibility by being in this public forum. So what if in the future you said, hey, you know what? I don't want to be, I don't want that podcast existing. Please delete it. Like it could be even a year from now. Do you think that uh, even though you consented now, is that consent binding? Is it permanent or could you? You know, what I'd say is where I'm at right now, I'd ask you politely to take it down, but I gave you permission to record this. I gave consent at the time, and I think that I have to deal with the consequences of that. So I would say it is binding. Um, Again, the key caveat being consent here. Now, if you were secretly recording a conversation, then I think that you should be taking it down immediately if that is requested. That's Mm -hmm. kind of where I fall on that because 
I think now that we are in the internet age, being a responsible uh, internet citizen, if that's right. the appropriate word for it, you have to be responsible for your actions. And if I were to say something outrageously racist or something like that, and I consented to saying it, I should be held accountable for that. With, again, the caveat that I'd prefer if the person saying those things had a fully developed brain, or at least what legally constituted as a fully developed brain, so they were able to understand the impact of their actions. Yeah, the problem is that this new generation of kids, their whole lives are online yeah. already, right? Yeah. So, And a lot of that's going to be permanent, right? So usually when we talk about things like this, the idea is, well, you can't give consent if, you know, if in the sexual domain, you can't give consent if you're 15 years old. Consent just doesn't yeah. exist because your brain's not fully developed. Can you give consent in the digital realm Ooh. if you're a minor? I mean, yeah, part of the reason is all this has developed, you know, it's just another example of tech technology outpacing the law. Yeah. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's almost like we've let the genie out of the bottle already, at least with respect to this younger generation, maybe in years from now, they'll regret some of the uh, things that they posted. Yeah, I think you're right. I also think that there's progress being made. So when I created the, uh, the website for Bio1107, I made a terms of condition. And by I made it, I mean, I found an app to make it for me. And one of those terms and conditions is by using this website, you are saying that you are at least, uh, what, what is it, like 13 years or older, or you are not 13 years or under. Yeah. So there are laws in place to kind of get us started with that. But you're absolutely right. Um, these kids are, are making these decisions that hopefully won't bite them in the ass later, but probably will, realistically speaking. And I almost feel like it... It requires responsibility on the the CEO of the tech company that's providing that medium. There's definitely some moral and ethical considerations that that person needs to consider. Yeah. I feel like so much of this would be solved if the average person just realized that people are infinitely more complex than their digital profile suggests. You know, I mean, there's... <laughs> That's asking way too much of humans. <laughs> are you fucking nuts? <laughs> Seriously, though, But, you know, man. just like seeing one thing about a person online and then feeling like you have an accurate assessment of who they are given that one tidbit of information that you have about them. And it, maybe you caught them in a bad moment. Yep. Right. And this is where the whole cancel culture stuff comes into the picture. And now you're holding them to that worst moment yep. and you're defining them in terms of that. Um, again, people have been talking about this, but it does seem like it's a problem. And, you know, I, I have to check it in myself as well, because, you know, I'll just have not met anyone in real life, but have an idea of who they are just because of yeah. my interaction with them on Twitter or something like that or things that I see about them online. Yeah. But think about how fucking complex your life is. That you have this huge subjective inner universe, this crazy story, first personal movie that you've been living since you were uh, born. It's just once you realize how that everyone else has that same inner complexity, um, I don't know, it can help me make judgments 
or it can help me resist making judgments about people prematurely based upon just some mm. stupid facts that I know about them. You know, what's kind of beautiful about this is I think this goes full circle to education. So I believe that the more we educate people, they the more likely they are to arrive at the conclusion that you just stated, that we are all humans inherently uh, inhabiting this space. And the faster that we realize that, Call me liberal and call me idealistic, but that's the faster we realize, like, oh, maybe being racist is really fucking stupid. Or maybe killing people over their religious beliefs. Maybe that's not so cool. I don't know. Side rant, but... Yeah. Yeah, well... Oh, another thing maybe that fits in here that I wanted to bring up is the, uh, the responsibility that these big tech companies have in terms of... Um, creating the right algorithm so as to filter information in a responsible way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, mean, I so know exactly I mean, what you mean. Like, when you're just using Google, for example, how many times when I use Google, I rarely look through the four pages of results. Oh, yeah. I'll usually just, you know, because I don't have the time. I don't have the attention. I'll just look through the first two pages of results. And Google's algorithm is determining the information that I see. Yeah. The power that they have in terms of just dictating the information that the average consumer sees when they look up information is yeah. just extraordinary. And one problem is... um. Well, there's, I view it as there are two issues here. One is that um, I, I think that Google, I think it's still this the case, but the, they have this algorithm called called uh, PageRank. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it... Uh, you know a fun fact about that? No. Most uh, people think that that is um, like, well, this will rank what pages I should show. Yeah. When in fact, it's actually named after Larry Page, one of the co-founders with oh, yeah. Sergey Brin. It was <laughs> his algorithm, hence the name PageRank. Sorry, I, I just love fun facts like that. <laughs> no, I'm a tech yeah, nerd. No, yeah, I assumed it was just the, the not Larry Page. Yeah. The page. Yeah, so it says here, Google says, quote, PageRank works by counting the number and quality of links to a page to determine a rough estimate of how important the website is. Um, so yeah, if, if there are more hyperlinks to a page, uh, then that's going to be shown first. But just because something is more popular, doesn't mean that it's more reliable from an epistemic point of view necessarily. Or, or I guess another way of putting the point is, um, it's kind of like a, uh, a rich get richer phenomenon. Like if you're already mm. popular, if you have a website that's already popular, that's more likely to get shown first, yeah. determined by Google's page ranked. And therefore, it's going to be more popular, you know. Yeah. So, so it prioritizes these websites or tech companies that are already dominating the space, yep. and that's not necessarily a good thing. So, my understanding is that you can turn PageRank off, and then, so the algorithm is tailored to your own personal online habits. Um, so it'll detect what you like, and then it'll start feeding you content or prioritizing content that aligns with your ideological point of view. But the problem with that kind of personalization algorithm is that can it can lead you into this kind of informational bubble where you're now only seeing the things that you like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, yeah, I guess I don't know how to solve this algorithm problem, um, or I don't know the best way to tailor the algorithm so as to be the most epistemically productive for the general public. 
That's a really, really interesting, complex um, problem. I think, I think you have to narrow it down to use cases because there's so many different ways that we use Google, uh, whether it's like I need to buy a suit. Um, so I just type in suit near me and that's the most relevant thing and maybe men's warehouse is number one, so I'm gonna go there. If I'm searching for certain knowledge, I might use Google as a, a springboard, but I might, I'd probably go to Wikipedia because the majority of Wikipedia is um, cited, reviewed. If I really wanna dig in the weeds, then it's my responsibility to go to um, an academic journal. And that's a whole nother argument because I think paywalls to, to have information to academic journals is just inherently wrong. Uh, there's actually a, a hilarious thing on Nature, one of the uh, the most popular academic journals that I believe the title is uh, something along the lines of paywalls are detrimental to the success of um, academic or education as a whole. And then it says, <laughs> pay $50 to read this article. Dude, I saw uh, <laughs> there's a recent meme that I saw and it was like, Fox News, free to access. Breitbart, free to access. New York Times, paywall. Uh, some other website, paywall. Yeah. The Atlantic. And it's like, this is why that we're in the pro You know, it's someone yeah. who was coming from a liberal point of view. And their, yeah. their point was, well, yeah, if it's free to access, then people are going to gravitate towards those informational sources. And you're also going to get people gravitating away from certain sources, too. So... Yeah, I have no clue what the answer to that is. That's a very difficult question. Do you think that there's a human right to the internet? That was another article I was reading recently. They're arguing that there's a human right to the internet in the same way that you know, people say we have a right to healthcare, for example. It's a universal right. Yeah, I... I tend to think that we do. Have I, right I would internet. agree with that. I think just because... With the internet being something that's collaborative and created for us. So the way that the internet actually first developed, as I understand it, is basically just to get academic institutions to talk to other academic institutions. And believe it or not, the only reason that it expanded to the level that it's at now is through free open source contributions. It was basically just a bunch of hackers who said, hey, it'd be kind of cool if we did this. And then that got maybe another hundred or thousand or so people on the internet. And then they said, it'd be even better if we did this. Mm. So I think the inherent nature of the internet being a collaborative portal that is built by hackers and built by people that want to disperse information, I do think that it should be a human right. Yeah. I guess the tricky part would be rights entail obligations, Right. If I have a right to health care, then some entity, maybe the government, has an obligation to give it to me. Mm. Right. So the same thing would be true of the Internet. Right. If I have a right to the Internet, then we have a right. Then there's someone is obligated with the task of providing people with that access. Yeah. And I don't know if that's too demanding of a thing to require. Mm. Of, I guess you. Yeah, it, I don't know. It might be right now, but I would hope by 100, 200 years from now when we've got a better handle on energy and maybe we've really gotten better with renewable energy, 
then I'd say that's a much more practical thing that all governments should provide. Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe we'll make this the last question if you want. But another thing is uh, geolocational filtering, which is something that we're going to talk about next week. But you have these cases. You have these cases of these big tech companies that are providing access to their platforms in countries that um, engage in censorship. So one of these mm. examples I think is Google in China. Yeah. So China says, "Hey Google, if you want to." market your product here, you have to abide by our rules of censorship. So there are yeah. certain things that you're not allowed to show on your platform if you want to uh, have Google in China. And I might be misremembering, but I think Google complied with this. Yeah. Um, so their argument was, so when I first saw this, my initial reaction was, that's insane. Why would you kowtow to the censorship rules, right? Um, that goes against everything I believe. But their argument, which I thought was interesting, was like, look, we have two options. Either we're going to provide access to our platform to these people in a censored way, or we just don't give access at all. And it's better at least giving people in China, for example, some access yeah. to Google, even if it's censored, than giving them no access to Google. So, I never thought of that. Yeah, so if the goal is giving people information... We might as well comply with these laws to at least allow them some access. Yeah. Wow. I very quickly changed my mind, which makes me concerned. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I did too. I like, did too. my instinct was the same as yours. Like, no, fuck that. That's fine. Like, we're up. not doing business in China then. Sorry, we're a liberal uh, company and we don't abide by your censorship rules. I believe the, um, the goal or the mission statement of Google is to provide access to the world's information. So right. in that case, they are living by their mission statement. And if it's at the cost of typing in Tiananmen Square 1989 or whenever that happened and having the results not be what they really are. Which they're not, right? In China, I, I I'm believe sure so. Um, also, I think Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah is banned With i don't Xi think that Jinping. comes up yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i know they banned south park recently too no kidding yeah because yeah. south park did an episode where they just fucking tore apart <laughs> the chinese communist party that's just uh, i i think that's one thing that it's very easy to uh to underappreciate here like the fact that people can criticize trump and and say some some things about him. I'm I'm purposely being neutral and vague here. Well, yeah, I thought everyone liked Trump. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, look, we're not living in a fascist country right now. Okay, like the fact that you can criticize Trump and yeah. the police don't come knocking on your door and taking so you away far. to some yeah some prison. <laughs> like, um, yeah. All right. I think. Uh, I've stolen enough of your time, sir. You thief. <laughs> nah, that was good, man. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. We'll have to do this again because this was a good time. Yeah, for sure.